Hi everybody, it's Bowen here, and this is part of a series of conversations that I'm putting out on my Substack, which is called Decide Nothing. Today, I'm talking with my friend Kenyon Phillips. He and I met through an ex of mine back in the years when I was going to New York all the time for my conference business. Kenyon struck me early on as one of the most unique people I'd ever come into close contact with. Someone who was very much following his own path and in full rock and roll style. Let's just say that I liked very much how he was living, and I still do. In the years since, he's gone from midnight cabaret musician and band leader to suburban family man, father of two, and creative talent with his own podcast called Be Here Tomorrow and a wellness project called Center. As I was editing this episode, I was thinking about how one way to look at this podcast is as an opportunity for me to work with people who have been my teachers, which also explains the song that you're about to hear. I mean, look at this guy. You'd be hot for him too. Kenyon is another man that I love and respect and that I continue to want to get to know more deeply, which is why I've invited him to be with us here today. Wait a second, man. What do you think a teacher's gonna look like this here? Kenyon, so great to see you, man. Thanks so much for doing this. I'm really looking forward to talking with you today, buddy. I'm happy to see your face, and I love what you're doing. I just love what you're writing. I just read Sex at Dawn of Budokan, the wayfinding as a skill and as something that can be applied across all these different applications, but then to really feel it in nature. And then the nature boner. I'll never forget this moment. I was like 18 years old. I went to boarding school in Ojai. So it was this beautiful setting for adolescence, right? There's orange groves and avocado trees and literally miles and miles and miles of backwoods and trails and hot springs and waterfalls. And, you know, just like a typical afternoon, you'd finish up your classes and you'd put on your shorts and you'd go for a run with your favorite teachers and stuff. And you'd run up to a waterfall and the teachers would, you know, like take off their clothes and jump in and do like, you know, primal scream. And it was amazing. But I remember this one moment, I'll never forget it because I stole off with my high school crush. I was her mistress. She had a big boyfriend who played lacrosse. And, you know, when the big jock guy wasn't around, she'd come find me. And I remember going off into the bush and finding this rock and it was the middle of the day and I remember just making out in that wonderful way that you make out when you're like 17 18 years old oh man yeah high school sex yeah and it was hot and it was sexy and it was literally hot and I was feeling myself like you talked about the feeling it from the root and the rock that we were making out on was Mm -hmm. heating my fucking grundle and it's like going (laughs) right right up through me right and I and it was so new sex was so new at that point I remember her sort of pleasuring herself and I I was in there and I just felt so alive. And I remember being very conscious of my environment and thinking, this is what human animals do. The human animal. Exactly. Exactly. That's just it. (laughs) Yeah. But we just jumped right in. You know, I'm so glad you picked up on that in that piece. I finally felt to speak to it because it's something that I have been feeling 
all my life, I guess, but really more yeah. and more in just the last few years. I mean, you know, I'm 52 and my sex drive certainly hasn't been decreasing. <laughs> That's amazing. I'm 46. I'm going to be 47 in a couple months. And yeah. what I've experienced is my sex drive has decreased. And I wonder if that's because I'm in a monogamous relationship. I wonder if it's because I have two kids. I'm wondering if it's because mm -hmm. I have this pressure that I didn't have. For years, I lived hand to mouth as an artist. You've seen my tiny little shoebox apartment yeah. that I used to live in. It was literally totally. 450 square feet. Yeah. And I was there for like 15 years, um, but having a lot of fucking sex, just like mad sex. There was a period where it was like five partners that I was rotating. And, I can and imagine. I mean, I saw a little bit of your life there in New York, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> yeah. And, and then I moved into this phase that I'm in now, which I think it's all part of the journey. And mm -hmm. I live in a house in the country and yeah, I'm not as sexually stimulated, but it's there, man. I had this mm -hmm. dream two nights ago. Check this dream Tell out. Tell me, yeah. I'm in a desert, very Frank Herbert, very Dune, right? Mm -hmm, and I'm mm -hmm. there with a female companion whose identity I can't quite make out, but she's very familiar to me. Mm. And not a partner, a female companion. And we're there specifically in the desert to witness a mating ritual between two humans. And, and they can't perform it. The man and the woman cannot perform this mating ritual, which is essentially having sex in front of a delegation of people. And somehow it falls on me and my female companion to come up with a surrogate. And we spend this very hectic 24 hours in the dream going all over this desert colony, trying to find people to perform this sex ritual, this sacred mating ritual. And mm -hmm. in the end, at the end of the dream, I realize it's got to be me. It's got to be me to do the fucking with this female companion and i have all this trepidation the future of the tribe depends on it yeah man there's that and then there's also the consciousness that i have my life here like wait but what about your wife and what about your kids and what uh, about your domesticity and your traditional mm -hmm. monogamous relationship and then there was excitement because even though i couldn't make out the identity of this female companion i was attracted to her and the prospect of having sex mm -hmm. with her in this ritualistic format and context was really exciting and then i had also like performance anxiety am i going to be able to do it Right. Am I going to be able to, A, am I going to be able to explain it to my wife without her killing me? <laughs> and B, am I going to be able to perform, have sex in front of people? And then yeah. I woke up. Intense. It's a lot there. You know, and you just asked your own question of whether the decrease in your sex drive has anything to do with being in a monogamous relationship and perhaps whether it has anything to do with becoming a father. And yeah. I would say the evidence is in that both of those are true. Actually, yeah. of course, also with age to some extent, but when and if we do become fathers, well, it kind of makes sense that the biological component right. of the drive does decrease. It's like, hey, we've done the job. Right. Yeah, totally. It's uh, weird, man. For years, I was just like, monogamy is not natural. It's a construct. Mm -hmm. I don't feel a need to be monogamous. And I cheated on all my girlfriends practically up until a certain age. And then I had shame about that because my best yeah. friends were always women. You know, it wasn't like I was able to straight right. up objectify women growing up. And so I had a lot of guilt and shame about the cheating. And then I reached this point. I remember it was very clear to me in the fall of 2012. I was like, Kenyon, you are not cut out for a relationship. You're not cut out for marriage. You're definitely not cut out for child rearing mm -hmm. and you're not cut out for monogamy. You are cut out for your art. Like you're here to make music and perform yeah. 
and have friends. And if you want sex, you can find it. And that's your mission. And I was totally content with that. That's when I reached this understanding of solitude versus loneliness. Yes. Where I was like, solitude, I'm happy to be on my own. I had a roommate for all these years. I kicked him out. I was living on my own. I realized I could support myself. I could live in this tiny little white clean shoebox with minimal belongings and material possessions. And I was really happy. And then literally two months later. I was just going to say, how long did that last? (laughs) Two months later. I got involved with the woman I ended up marrying and having children with. That's really quite a turn, man. I was around at that time. We didn't know each other very well, but I saw you in your artist life surrounded by women on stage. And then a few years later, became aware that you had partnered up. And so what happened there for you? Well, the solitude that I just described was amazing. And having that realization really made me very happy. And it actually didn't make me want to go out and fuck a bunch of people. I went more inward and I was able to really get to this place of peace. And I was being really prolific with music at the time. And then what happened was this girl called me who had dated my roommate two years earlier. Mm. And I sort of knew peripherally. And there was Hurricane Sandy. And she said, hey, I know you're in an area, part of New York, that's affected. Do you need a place to stay? Because I've got electricity and running water. And I was like, thanks, Mm. I'm cool. I don't have electricity, but I have running water and I have a stove that works. So Mm -hmm. I'm kind of camping out here. But it's my birthday in a couple of days and I'm going to go to the Russian Turkish baths, which is a really primal. Straight to RTB. You know it. Absolutely. And you and I have been there together. (laughs) And I said, so I'm going to go with a couple of guys if you want to come. And she did. She showed up Mm -hmm. and she looked amazing in this white bikini. And and she was super anorexic at the time. And and I was really attracted to that at the time. Mm -hmm. Like I had my own body dysmorphia issues that I still struggle with. And I just loved me a skinny ass, unhealthy looking girl. (laughs) And that's what she was. Mm. And we immediately started a sexual relationship, but I thought it was nothing more than that. Yeah. And I don't think she thought it was anything more than that. She would do shit like I'd come and I'd pass out because, you know, that's what I do sometimes. And she'd leave and I'd wake (laughs) up and I'd be like, whoa, 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 what's up? She's gone. It went that way for a few months. And then Mm. one day she was like, hey, do you want to go see this show at the MoMA? And I was like, oh, yeah, I really do want to see that. You want to see that? And she was like, yeah. And I was like, oh, she's a person. Right, like uh, daytime. Yeah, daytime (laughs) stuff. And then what unfolded was intimacy, not just physical intimacy, but emotional intimacy and realizing there's connection and compatibility. And it scared the shit out of me. Mm. I assumed it was not love. Because why aren't we fighting? (laughs) And so I started pushing against it. And then within nine months, I had broken up with her. But I did not have any interest in ceasing acquaintanceship or friendship. I was invested in her life and her happiness and her pursuits Mm -hmm. and her struggles. And she was struggling with addictions. She was struggling with eating disorders. And around that time that we broke up, she ended up in rehab. And Mm -hmm. I was still in the mix. I was not involved with her sexually, but I was involved with her emotionally. And then we got back together and then we were working on this show together that was really, really intense. And then I broke up with her again Mm -hmm. because I felt like she was sort of barely holding on and I had become this higher power to her. And Mm -hmm. that in the absence of me and our relationship, she would resort to really self-destructive behavior. And that felt really, really smothering to me. And 
I didn't want to be her God or her daddy or any of that. I'm not saying that that's how she perceived me, but that's how I perceived the relationship. She did have a relapse. Mm -hmm. I heard about it. I wanted to call her ass up and scream and, mm -hmm. and berate her like a, like an angry father. Yeah, right. Like God and daddy. Yeah. yeah. Angry Jehovah, angry Zeus. Mm -hmm. And thank God I didn't do that. And she came to me and she said, you know, I, I fucked up. I relapsed. I don't want to live. And I said, well, if you want to change it, you can start now. You can start tomorrow. And she did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And she got sober. The next morning, I called a couple of dear friends who mm -hmm. also knew her. And they took her into like AA, which was really helpful for her. Mm -hmm. And then within a few months, we were fucking again. And I was thinking, wow, maybe we should just really be together. During yeah. this time, a dear friend gave me a session with an incredible astrologist who almost was like a therapist. And it mm -hmm. blew my mind. It blew my mind. It was totally, totally, totally keyed into my struggles, um, questions I was asking myself and too afraid to ask. And I was blown away. So I told Aaron, you got to see this guy. So she went. And at the end of the session, the guy, the astrologer said, how do you know Kenyon? Mm -hmm. And she said, well, we're working together and we're friends. And he said, oh, I have his chart pulled up here. Holy shit. Oh, my God. You have five conjunctions. He said, if you believe in this shit, you are absolutely destined to be involved with each other and to be in each other's lives. And your lives are going to be bigger and richer because of that connection. So I went in and he said, make a decision within the next 30 days. How are you going to define your relationship? Is it going to be a friendship? Cool. Stick to that. Is it going to be a love relationship? Cool. Stick to that. Is it going to be a working relationship? Cool. Stick to that. Is it going to be all of those things? you know, just resolve it. So I thought about it. And the next day I told her, look, I want to be with you. I love you. I want to grow with you. Hmm. I want to be with you monogamously, which is something I've never done. And she had never really done, mm -hmm. but here are the caveats, no cohabitation, no air conditioning, no TVs, no pets, no children, and definitely no marriage. And if you can't take me on those terms, I understand, and God bless you. But if you want me, those are my terms. And she said, without hesitation, I'll take you on those terms. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. And then within a year, I asked her to marry me, straight up, no engagement. And now you have two children together. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that story. Sorry, I was a little long. You no, no, it's it, all good. <laughs> <laughs> Well, a couple of things came to my mind along the way there. One is, I just want to say to you, thank you. I don't even know if you know this, but you are one of the people that inspired me to change my own relationship with alcohol. It wasn't a big bang for me. It wasn't a, you know, go to rehab kind of situation. Yeah, yeah. Um, It was something that developed very organically. But I remember very clearly just coming to know you and seeing your vibrancy and aliveness and knowing that you were sober. You know how it is. At one point in my life, I probably didn't know anybody that didn't drink. Right. And now I hardly know anyone that does. And it's yeah. not by way of any kind of effort on my part to consciously select for those people or seek them out. I'm different. And so my life is different. But at that time, you were one of the few examples that I had come across of people that I was kind of interested in and had already made that choice. I'm really moved by that. I didn't know that. Oh, oh. I didn't mm. know that. I'm actually really touched mm. Mm. because yeah. I just respect the hell out of you. And I'm glad that I could do that, you know, that I could be that for you. Yeah, you were definitely a piece of that puzzle.
Thank you. You asked this great question about what is being a man, you know? What does it mean? I think being a person, maybe, but it's about service. What's my purpose? I think my personhood, my manhood is probably resting on my purposehood. <laughs> and what is my purpose? Having children really put this into perspective for me. My purpose is to be of service and to do it from a joyful place. So if you were picking up on my vibrancy, yeah, you know, through a sober lifestyle, if you were picking up on that joie de vivre and energy and you were like, yeah, I want that too, then that's the truest example, the most beautiful example I can think of right off the top of my head of being of service. Because when we do that, we give from abundance or the interest rather than the principle. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't cost us anything to be of service when we're, we're following our joy and giving joy to others. I feel you. It doesn't cost us anything where it's part of the life energy that we all do have and generate and are constantly generating and putting out. There are lots of things that can diminish dim cloud cover oh, yeah. and just completely destroy that energy. But when we don't have those things in the way, there's like a constant source. And I certainly felt that from you. Another piece that comes up for me is this question of fatherhood. Yeah, uh, yeah. I wrote a big piece about my own journey of not becoming a father. Yeah, um, which is amazing. Man, it's certainly something that I have thought about a lot throughout my life. Of course, I think all men do and all women do think about becoming parents. And, you know, where I landed with it is that, first of all, kind of by observing myself in the wild, that I had so many choices along the way, so many junctures where I could have become a father and I chose not to. Um, feeling open to it, but it wasn't a big priority. And now having arrived at this point where I'm very happy not to be a father. And yet it's also true that I know that I missed that. That's something that I don't have and that I'm not. And both are true, you yeah. know, both are true. And of course, I know lots of guys that are fathers and there are lots of things that they don't have, you know, because of that. There's just so many experiences in life and we don't get to have all of them. No, no. We don't get to have all of them at all. But I think we have the experiences we're supposed to have. I do trust the universe on that. I didn't want to have kids, man. The idea of fatherhood to me was just a drag. It was a yeah. burden that I didn't want. I told myself things like, well, I don't want to give up my freedoms. It's going to take me away from my art and creative pursuits and um, fucking lots of girls right. and all that stuff that I thought was really important and was really important. And underneath that was another layer, which was I'm terrified of fucking a kid up. I can't Fear. be trusted. Yeah, yeah, I can't be trusted as a father. My own father is, you know, flawed. And there was a lot of parenting that went down in my house that was not the kind of parenting I want to emulate. I certainly wouldn't wouldn't want to repeat those behaviors. So sure. I was kind of like, let me just take myself out of the running yeah. and quit while I'm ahead, so to speak. One of the reasons I married Aaron, my wife, was she told me she didn't want to have kids. Right. And I was like, oh, how often do you find a girl who doesn't want to have kids? That's awesome. So you both changed your tune on this. So what happened was this. We were on birth control, on the pill, mm -hmm. one of the pills. There's so many, right? And one day we were in Kauai on this hike and it's so beautiful. And it was a long hike and it was muddy. And my mm -hmm. wife was really bitterly complaining. And I was just like, 
what the fuck, man? You're like 11 years younger than me. Like, why is this so hard for you? And really, really moody and complaining. And then she said, you know, my boobs really hurt. And then, Mm. so yeah, she went to the doc the next day and the doctor said, you're almost done with your first trimester. Wow. Before I heard that, my first thought was, okay, how do I convince her to have an abortion in a, you know, gentle way? And then as soon as I heard that, my first thought was, the universe wants me to be a dad. Mm -hmm. The universe wants me to face my greatest fear. Mm -hmm. I literally would have nightmares before having kids about like, I wake up and I'm married and I have children. That was a nightmare scenario. And what I found was the opposite. That was what happened. And then with the second, Mm -hmm. here we are, this is early 2021. I've moved to the country. We've transplanted our life from New York City to rural Connecticut, Uh you know, like five acres and stuff. My wife says to me, I want to have a conversation about having a second child because Mm -hmm. I don't want our son to be an only child. I value my relationship with my brother and Mm -hmm. I want him to have that. And we have space now. And so I was like, well, okay, I'm open to it. I'm open to having another one. Yeah. And she said, okay, well, I'm going to go to my doctor. She went to the doctor. She had a checkup. The doctor's like, you're six weeks pregnant. <laughs> so what were the five synchronicities that this astrophysicist, you know, <laughs> right? astrologer? Dude, yeah. he knew something. And yeah, for sure. So, yeah. So again, like another nightmare. And then mm-hmm. all that all that crazy fuck you money that my dad came into vanished <laughs> within months. It was gone. And wow. so there was no security. There was yeah. no life raft for me mentally. Yeah. And I was like, yeah. oh shit, back to my primal fear of yeah. not being able to provide. Yeah. I'm this artist guy. How am mm-hmm. I going to provide for not only one child, but two children? Yeah. Um, and you know, all these fears kicked up. And so far, having a second child has mm. absolutely enriched my life. Mm. As soon as I saw my son, Soren, mm. as soon as he popped out of Aaron's vagina, my heart exploded. That's the only way I can describe it. Mm-hmm. The Buddhists say that you experience your child's entire life from first breath to last breath mm. in the space of a single heartbeat mm. when you view your child for the first time. And mm. I'd say that's pretty accurate. Mm-hmm. It was like, holy shit, almost like a heart attack, but a joyful one. I felt depths of emotion that I'd never known. And then part of me, the cynical part was like, oh, this is dopamine and the brain is doing it. You You're know, programmed to feel this yeah, way. Yeah, 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 I'm programmed. And then I was like, you know what, even if I'm programmed to feel yeah, it, Yeah, it's fine, yeah. I'll feel yeah. it. And then when the second was born, Harlow, my daughter, mm-hmm. um, she's nine months now. Mm-hmm. The explosion happened and I was mm-hmm. reduced to this weepy, soul raw gratitude raw emotion love not fear the fears vanished and it was just like let me love this person who is of me and separate of me it's not all sunshine and rainbows man it's hard sometimes what comes to mind for me is our ability to change to adapt right when our path changes because it sometimes does and sometimes really radically what I like to say about this is that the view from the inside always seems normal. And yes. so your view from the inside before seemed normal and it was, and then it changed. And now a totally different view seems normal, yes. you know, seems like you and it is you. It and is. It, and just as much so. And so it's not like you were wrong before in thinking that you didn't want to be a father 
Right. Or, that's how you thought then, and that was true. And then yeah. it changed. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. You know? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I, I think change is to be celebrated. Yeah. There's a great line. It's actually Ed- Edgar Allan Poe, but Lou Reed sort of remixed mm. it. And it was the only thing constantly changing is change. I think change, let me accept it. Let me work on accepting change. It scares me conceptually. Change mm. really frightens me because I think danger, danger, mm. danger, Will Robinson. What if I'm ill-equipped? Mm. What if I don't have enough? What if I am not enough to yeah. face the change and adapt? But you mm. know what? I'm 46. I've endured quite a few changes and yeah. every single one I've been able to meet. Yeah. And when you talk about van in it and going out into the wilderness, mm-hmm. you have to make some changes and you make them work. And there's joy beyond survival. That's also what I'm getting at when I talk about wayfinding, that joy in finding our way, finding my way along the road or along the trail or through my own life, right? Yeah. Your joy at finding your way through these huge transitions. I know for me, that is a huge part of the joy of life. The fear though, man, I mean, there's another fear that like, that is still so present for me, which is a fear of not being able to provide for myself. Yeah. The scarcity thinking. The scarcity, the fucking scarcity. And just the fact that, I mean, it's not just in the United States, but certainly the way America works, we all have to fight for our own little piece, you know, and there's no floor underneath us. That fear is a kind of always there. Does that come in for you? Oh, dude, that's my number one fear is the (laughs) fear of financial ruin. I grew up with tremendous privilege on the one hand. I grew up, you know, very upper, very bougie, (laughs) upper middle class. And my father did very well, but he always stressed that the nature of his business being in advertising and being a director was feast or famine. Mm. The next job was never guaranteed. He owned his own business. And so I grew up with this, you know, on the one hand, going to really nice schools, going to Africa on safari when I'm 10 years old, Mm. never wanting for anything materially. And then at the same time thinking it could all go away at any given second. I could get pulled out of that school. Maybe there isn't even going to be food. There was great, great fear, real or imagined. I mm-hmm. experienced it as a child. So I grew up, on the one hand, like super overachieving and rocking a 4.0 and Phi Beta Kappa at like a fancy school and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And really treating school like a job that mm-hmm. I had to excel at um, in order to stake my claim and gain some sense of security. There's a great Helen Keller quote that I'll paraphrase. It essentially says, in nature, no such thing exists as security. It's a myth. Yes, it's a myth. She goes on to say, life is either a daring adventure or nothing. I absolutely feel you on that fear. And it still comes in. One of the things that is helpful for me to remind myself is Mm -hmm. that, you know, I can't really fuck it up that badly based on the evidence so far, I do pretty well navigating my way through the world. I mean, I started a business totally from scratch, from zero, from nothing, you know, and grew it into a successful thing. And then I managed to sell it. But then talk about feast or famine, these days I make zero, basically. It's one day at a time. I forget that. I want to secure the future. I want to not have to worry. I want to like work, 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 and get to this point where I can just coast. Right. I have somebody in my life, a man whom I very much look up to. Mm. His name's Gordon Clark. And once he shared a story about his mother, he comes from this like wealthy Bay Area, old school, old money family. And his mom, Mm. despite all this privilege and everything said to him when she was getting older, 
I really thought that one day it would all just be easy sailing mm -hmm. and life just doesn't work that way. Once one challenge is met, mm -hmm. you're presented with the next tougher challenge. We can view that as a drag or we can do what you just did, which is laugh. And it's a rueful laugh, but it's also, yeah. it's a laugh. The truth, it's also a, a truthful laugh, yes. Yeah, and, and, and <laughs> even laughing in the face of that reality, which yeah. could be a real bummer, yeah. if I looked at it through that lens, it could be a bitter disappointment, a crushing disappointment, a reason not to get out of bed in the morning, to be able to laugh in the face of that. Oh, wow, I already feel so challenged. I've got more challenges ahead. I've got even yeah. tougher challenges ahead. Holy shit. Okay, bring it. Like, say yes to it. Yeah, the capacity to transform trauma and tragedy into comedy, that's a high value capacity for sure, right? Absolutely. So, yeah, man. I mean, I was congratulating myself in a way these past three years for kind of living cheap. You know, I went kind of full nomad, not spending a ton of money. And then this spring, I almost bought a house and was yep. in contract for the house and then realized that this was not the house for me. You know, yeah. I had been kind of trying to talk myself into it. And so I had to back out of the deal and had to forfeit my deposit in the process. Ooh. So yeah, there yeah. went all the savings, all the cheap living that I'd been doing over the past three years. I just realized this last night. I was like, fuck. Yeah, <laughs> wiped it out. Wiped it out. It's just as if I'd been living in a, you know, fancy apartment the whole time. There's a Gertrude Stein poem. It's funny about money is all she says it's funny about money and money is funny and money does come and go yeah i have had periods that have traumatized me if i'm being honest where mm -hmm. i was super hand to mouth you know mm -hmm. this is before i knew you i think right before i met you where it was like do i eat or pay the rent even doing sex work sometimes whatever i could do supplemental income eating at popeyes you know getting the sides i'm a vegetarian but like yeah. the corn and the beans and and a biscuit that's under five bucks and there's a meal you know and even being homeless for a while being houseless and just like mm. oh hearing about a, an apartment that was vacant or hearing about somebody who needed a house sitter yeah and putting all my belongings in a literally in one cardboard box mm. Having had those experiences was really educational, but it was also traumatizing on a certain level yeah. because there was real fear and that haunts me still. Mm -hmm. And some days it really bites me in the ass. And I become, mm -hmm. I think for my wife, especially really difficult to live with mm -hmm. and be around because I can just get really negative until I remember, you know, conversations like the one we're having. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, other people have this fear and other people have survived it. It's the sine curve of life. You know, yeah. everything's going to go up and down. I feel you there. I mean, I haven't had the same sort of houselessness situation as you have, although I did give up my home, my permanent dwelling yeah. three years ago. And it was an adventurous choice, but also like a money-saving choice, you uh -huh. know? And it's been great overall, and it's been an adventure and allowed me to explore a lot of things. It also brings up for me and i feel it now this feeling of being unsettled of right. constantly carrying things back and forth to the van or to some different place that i've rented you know it is unmoored ungrounded and i feel that i need to resolve that i'm just more getting to the visceral feeling you know man it hurts it can be just the right thing to be on the road and yeah it can kind of hurt too yeah. I think that it's that way with any choice we make. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you when I admire you 
I live in this house. I spend easily two hours a day cleaning it, cleaning up after my kids, Yeah, making sure we don't have ants. Right. And when I'm taking the trash barrels out, it's invariably late at night. I look up at the sky and mm. I see that expanse of stars. And here I am doing this really pedestrian, boring, domestic, bullshitty thing, taking the trash down. At least mm. I could look at it through that lens. Mm. And then I see this expanse of stars above me, or I see a harvest moon like I did a couple nights ago, mm. great big orange moon, or you know the rain clouds. And then I yearn to do what you're doing. I yearn to travel, to be rootless, so to speak, and to just go into that expanse. It's almost like the sky is beckoning me, all those stars and Jupiter and Saturn, you know, beam me up into that. And so when I read your accounts of your travels, it's really delicious. And it, again, it feels like, oh, wow, now that's living. So I feel what you're doing and I respect it, and I admire the adventure of it, the unknown, and the trust that it takes. I'm projecting, but it feels like it takes trust. These journeys do take and cultivate trust in ourselves, in our yes. ability to move through the world, to navigate, and uh, to end up in a good place. Maybe that's what being a man is, to, you know, trustworthy in terms of my construction. I was not trustworthy for many years, or I, I considered myself untrustworthy. Well, it's certainly one of the ways that I have failed in the past and where stereotypically, you know, a lot of men do, although a lot of women as well, a lot of people. And that brings me back to one of these core questions that I've been working with lately, which is, what is it that makes us men aside from having penises? And what, if anything, is really different in that from being a person, you yeah. know, of course, there are things that we think of as being masculine or as being more of men, but the yeah. more that I live my own life and also read and study and talk to other people, I can't really put my finger on anything aside from, again, having a penis and the ability to be a father, just like for a woman, the ability right, to become right, a right. mother. It's like, okay, well, a man can't be a mother and a woman can't mm -hmm. be a father, like in a biological right. way. Right, Aside right. from that, all the stereotypical differences, you know, the things that we think of as more of men or more of women seem to me to be things that everybody could be. Yes. What do you think about that? It's the eternal question. I love it. I've been thinking about it ever since you and I started talking. For me, the line just gets increasingly blurry the older I get. Yeah. When I was young, I had very clear ideas about what it was to be a man. Mm -hmm. This morning... My four-year-old, Soren, he has mm -hmm. long, beautiful hair, and mm -hmm. it's in his eyes, and he doesn't want to cut it. So my wife put it in a top knot. And God, he looks great. He looks amazing <laughs> with that top knot. And he angrily pulled it out mm. when we were about to go to school and said, I don't want to wear this, and I don't want to go to school. Mm. And we said, well, why? And he said, Christopher, his little boy that he's in his class, asked me why I look like a girl. And said I looked like a girl. Hmm. And, you know, I puffed up and I wanted to like go kick Christopher's ass. And, you know, of course, Christopher's like the littlest kid in the class. So he's got a Napoleon complex. So he's picking on my beautiful androgynous boy. But it was interesting because it was like, oh, my son has a very clear idea of what a boy is and what a girl is. And I guess on some level, it's pejorative to be a female for him to be considered a girl. He didn't like that. It made him not yeah. want to go to school. Yeah. And and then I thought, oh, wow, like as a kid, I was perhaps to yeah. a certain extent 
gendered in that way. And I also remember being nine years old and the boys suddenly started playing really rough. They started playing games at school, like punching each other. Who could take the most punches? Mm -hmm. And I was not interested. Mm -hmm. And I separated myself. Mm. I remember walking home from school that day. I was like nine years old and thinking, I'm not going to have male friends Mm -hmm. anymore because I'm not interested in this. I want to do what the girls are doing. I want to act the way these boys acted up until today when everything was more unisex. So I guess... What I'm getting at is, at least when I was young, being a man meant being brutal and Mm. violent and rough. And I wasn't attracted to that. Yeah, yeah, same. What you just said about your son and his reaction to what his friend said. Yeah. What came to mind for me is we assume he thinks there's something wrong with being a girl. But certainly at that age, the shape of our body and whether we have a penis or vagina is one of the very few things that we do have that we can kind of attach ourselves to. He's into his penis. And so, you know, somebody, somebody questioning that, of course, you're going to reject that, or at least that, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, that it's bad to be a girl. It's just that he wants to be who he is. That's a really good point. Yeah. I got all hot and bothered Mm. because, you know, I'm a lifelong Bowie fan and I embrace (laughs) it. And so I said, well, there's nothing wrong with looking like a girl. It's Uh, awesome to look like a girl. And then Aaron, my wife said, you don't look like a girl. Yeah. And he responded way better to that. Yeah. I think you're on to something there. (laughs) I would like to be, we would all like to be viewed and accepted as we see ourselves, as we identify. I've been involved with trans people. Mm. I've dated trans women. And I was always very clear. I never asked them about their past, you know, when they were cisgendered men. What was it like when you had a penis? I took them as they presented themselves, which Mm. was female. Mm. And I would hope I do that for my child. I would hope that I do that for everybody. And again, maybe that's part of being a man. And what a man does, in my view, a man, hopefully a person, but Mm -hmm. specifically a man can embrace anybody they meet on their own terms and meet them where they are. Like a man doesn't have to say, you are this and you need to be this. Yeah. A lot of men in my life have done that. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They've said, no, you know, I'm the coach, I'm the dad, I'm the grandpa. You got to do mm-hmm. this. You got to mm-hmm. be this way. But no, I mean, for me as a man, mm-hmm. and I do choose to identify as a man, yeah. I want to give people permission mm-hmm. to be who they are and yeah. vibrate at the highest expression of their being. I think yeah. that's that's a good thing. Yeah, I think a lot of it's about identity and this question of what does it mean to be a man is really more about what does it mean to be a person, mm-hmm. you know, to feel like someone. Yeah. And because, hey, if you're born with a penis, you assume that there got to be some ways that if I do those things, then I qualify to be a person. Right. 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 Well, totally. it turns out at least these days, it's not so much about anything that's attached to either gender. I think it's all the things that we can be, all the ways that we can be that are less and less to do with being a man or a woman or anything else. Totally. Um, I remember this card that someone gave me. They gave it to me as almost a joke because it was kind of campy and old fashioned and it was very 70s. And it was a muscular, masculine guy with a beard holding a baby. 
on the outside of the card it says your greatest strength and then you open the card up and it says is your gentleness yeah there's truth in that absolutely similar to that talmudic idea of the highest form of wisdom is kindness the greatest strength is gentleness i mean again traditionally i was raised to believe men are strong mm -hmm. and if we look at it through that lens then men are gentle well, both yeah. You know, yeah. that's the thing. And so are women. I mean, we know this. Like, it'd be crazy yeah. to say that only men are strong and only women are, you know, or, totally. or either or, you know. Yeah. I'm just so all for the deconstruction of all these categories. Yeah, it's yeah. so exciting. It's like taking out the trash and looking up at the stars and seeing this whole galaxy yeah. above me. I mean, when we deconstruct these ideas that we thought were fixed. Yeah. Like all these infinite new paths form, you know, talk about wayfinding. Yeah. It gives us so many rich opportunities to do just that. It really does. I mean, and I had a similar experience in early life myself. I would say that I unconsciously mostly rejected the standard macho team sports playing right. examples. The older guys in the neighborhood, that sort of thing. And yet I certainly didn't reject being a boy and a young man and a man. I didn't have at that time any examples of men that were kind of doing it differently and doing it well. And right. again, you could say men, you could say people. Did you have none or did you have one? Well, I said none, even though there were a few. I wasn't paying that much attention. And now there are just so many more examples. Is there anyone that you would point to in your present life or out there in the world, a person who you admire, who happens to be a man that you just love their presence and the way that they are. Someone that you look to as an example. I'm grateful and I'm fortunate because I have so many now. Mm -hmm. So many. You're one of them. Mm. You know why? Because you're open. You're open. You are like, hey, I'm here for it. I'm here to learn. I'm here to explore. I'm here to improve. And by improve, I mean probably accept mm -hmm. you know, myself more. And that's a great joy to be around. My therapist, I'm very, very fortunate I get to work with him. He's the author, Thomas Moore, hmm. who's written a couple of works that are pretty well-known. Um, Dark Night of the Soul, hmm. Care of the Soul. He's got a Jungian background. Hmm. He was tight with Joseph Campbell and Hillman yeah. and some like amazing people. And he's also a composer. And hmm. he's dedicating his life more to writing and speaking than therapy anymore, but I'm very grateful that I get to work with him. He he embodies a masculine energy that is, like yours, entirely open. Mm. He's so knowledgeable of myths and archetypes, and he's like a deep well for all mm. that knowledge, yeah. and he has no judgment. Mm. He has no judgment. He only has curiosity and connection. Mm. And I love that. Yeah. I love me some curiosity and connection. Yeah. Yeah. Connection I've been doing pretty well with in recent years. And, you know, curiosity, I have it, but I met someone myself recently, another man, this guy, Cameron Shane, who I yeah. was just with in Montana. Doing There's an example of a guy that is doing it differently and doing it really well and just living well, you know, which I just love yeah. to see. And also he expressed his admiration for curiosity yeah. and I realized on my way back from Montana that I could have been more curious, really. <laughs> could have been more curious. We're pressured by the society to reduce. And curiosity is the opposite of reduction. 
curiosity is about expansion. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, don't know what this is. Yeah. I don't know what this is. Let me learn about it. Yeah. It's okay to admit that I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's certainly what I'm doing these days with my writing and with this sort of work, exploring in all directions. Um, it's a blessing. And it's a blessing to be curious about people, I think. Yeah. I'm blessed in that I am really curious about people. I want to yeah. get in there and I want to know. And fortunately, I guess I have this personality where people will tell me things. They will open up and yeah. share. And I learn, you know, it's a two-way street. I just realized something. I was fiddling with my website yesterday and wrote a new subhead somewhere. And I wrote, doing my best to get my nose in it, you know? So Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't thinking about curiosity, but that pretty much expresses oh, it. Oh, totally. And you know, when you talk about curiosity and noses, I'm curious about smells. I like to smell things, even things that are unpleasant. And <laughs> you know, my wife makes fun of me and stuff like that. But like, I want to smell, I want to like, yeah, I want to get my nose in it. I love dogs for that. Oh, I love man, how that's dogs all they do, yeah. dig in there totally. and, like, and they get information, you know, they get like vital information and I've always been like really fascinated by smells, literally and figuratively getting your nose in it. That's my new headline. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I love it. No, I saw it. I think you emailed it the other <laughs> yesterday and I was like, oh, I'm picking that up. Awesome. Kenyon, last question. And then like yeah. how to tell us how to find you, but what are you yeah. working on right now that's got you vibrating at a high frequency? Oh, thank you. That's a generous question to ask. I love it. I'm working on a couple of things that really uh, engage me. Um, mm. And one is my podcast, which is called Be Here Tomorrow, about finding reasons to live. Mm. The impetus was I was feeling suicidal and uh, starting to really suffer with suicidal ideation. Mm. And mm. it was like, well, let me dedicate short episodes to something mm. that I've experienced that has given me a reason to live. Mm. And so um, that mm. gives me a lot of life and I compose music for it. It's mm -hmm. ambient music. It's not the rock pop music that I've done in the past, but yeah. I love doing it. It's almost like a, a meditative exercise for me to mm. score these. And that brings me tremendous joy. Another project is a healing arts center where we facilitate community and better health and foster mm. radical self-acceptance. And we do it with workshops and retreats. I'm doing it in partnership with a wonderful, incredible woman named Shirley Pinkson Manis, whom I met mm. on what I thought would be a dreary day job. And we just mm. revived and connected. Right now, you can go to center.one, center.one, and you'll see a very meditative short film that's basically mm. just kind of an invitation. I love it. I love it. Center. Sounds fantastic. Thank you, brother. Yeah, dude. Thanks a lot. Great to talk with you. Oh, it was so awesome. I love you a lot. Thank yeah. you. You too, buddy. Yeah, you too. Real pleasure. Thank you. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please do share it with a friend and make sure that you are subscribed at decidenothing.substack.com where all of my writing and audio lives. 
most of all, if this brought something up for you, if you felt something, if you had a reaction, if you have some thoughts or suggestions about topics that you'd like me to see explore in the future, please do leave a comment right there on the Substack site. Of course, you can also reach me by email or on social media. Thanks again for being here, and I hope you tune in again soon.